So one of the, the key things I'll say that we learned, so Hidden Levers, when we built that platform initially, portfolio stress testing, scenario-based portfolio stress testing is what we were bringing to the table. And so we didn't know who our audience necessarily was. And it was sort of trial and error to discover that, oh, financial advisors, the reason this can be a SaaS product for them is that unlike, say, a high net worth individual, they've only got a finite number of assets in portfolios and accounts. So how often do they actually need to stress test those? With financial advisors, because they're running a book of business, there's always someone new to work on. And so this software can have repeated use and value. Welcome, everybody, to the Alternative Universe. This is a show for financial advisors, alternative fund managers, and those who want to navigate the diverse landscape of alternative investments and explore opportunities that lie beyond the ordinary. Today, I'm honored to have a former colleague and mentor of mine on the show. He's a four-time founder with two bootstrapped exits and is the current founder and CEO of Fraction.Work. Praveen, welcome to Alternative Universe. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. I'm really glad to have you on here. And, and um, coming on to the show, we have an audience. We work with financial advisors. We work with fund managers across the spectrum. And then obviously, there's a lot of investors out there as well that are involved in, in doing private deals. I think that you come with a very unique, not just background, but currently where you're at. So I'm excited to hear your story and share that with our audience, uh, not just as an operator, but also as an investor. Um, and someone who's built multiple businesses. And so why don't you just uh, start out by introducing yourself and, and telling us a little bit about how you got here. My name is Praveen. And until, until pretty recently, I guess I spent most of my career between fintech and finance, uh, about 20 years, where that started actually. So coming out of school, this was into the dot-com bubble. So lots of folks will remember that really from an investing perspective. So I graduated in 99. So right into the heart of it, you know, fever pitch. I started at a, at a job where the idea was to go into, was to help a big company do e-commerce and realized real quick, wait, this isn't going very fast at all. Big companies move so slow. So I quit that first job in like six months. And, you know, I was like, well, now's the time, you know, let's try to start a company. So the first company I started was actually, it was kind of like a primitive version of what you can do, of course, like in Google Docs or all of these platforms today where you can collaborate on documents online. But this is like, again, 1999, IE5, if anybody remembers that for browsers and Netscape Navigator and stuff like that. So in that old school era, just trying to make it so that two people could see a document uh, at the same time online. And then, you know, let's say it's like a Word document, say it's a contract or something like that, where you could drop sticky notes with your comments and the other person would see that through a browser. And that was kind of, uh, you know, cutting edge at that, you know, at that time. Wow. Absolutely. Like 25 years ago now. It's crazy. Um, but anyway, I mean, let's face it, that, that tool is still widely used. Yes. Well, so yes, yeah, so that, that tool and that technology ended up getting bought by a company called Intralinks. Uh, funny yep. story about that acquisition, actually, this is old school enough or long ago enough that when you pitched, and at that time, this was like, I was pretty recently out of school, didn't know anything about like bootstrapping versus venture capital. Like, how do you, you know, what are the paths to starting a company? You know, we figure like everybody that, what do you do? Well, you go and you build something a little bit, you get a little bit of traction maybe, or at least you've got a product and you go pitch angels and VCs. So it's exactly what we tried to do. Well, one of those pitches was a fax and it was a fax to Edison Ventures. 
East Coast VC at the time. And so I remember, you know, we didn't hear back from them. We were like sitting here faxing out, you know, pitches. But uh, they actually saw it and they put us in touch with some of their portfolio companies. And one way or another, through through kind of those contacts, uh, it fell into the lap of Interlinks. And we ended up getting acquired in early 2000. So now NASDAQ, I mean, now this sounds like a small number, but NASDAQ 5000 was a big number at that time. So months before, actually not months before, actually, the acquisition closes in June of 2000. And actually, the peak was in the earlier part of that year, Feb, March 2000. So the wheels are falling off now, the market. But what we're told in this M&A transaction is, yeah, Interlinks is going to go public in like weeks. So let's jump on the train. And we're excited. We, you know, moved to New York to, to start with Interlinks to help them build the next generation version of their platform and bring in, you know, some of the tech and the ideas that we had. Yeah, so the wheels fall off the market. They never go public, or they don't go public at that time. They go public like seven years later. Yeah, it was it was a great, great experience, learning experience, you know, for a young kind of entrepreneur. You know, we got to build the technology that became the, at that time, modern Interlinks platform. I think that lasted from, call it 2000, to probably maybe six, seven years ago. And I think they, they built another version atop that since. But yeah, so it was, it was a cool ride. And that actually spread... From there, I was in New York, got to know folks working on Wall Street, and I pivoted my career into building technology on Wall Street for a number of years. So that really sort of changed the arc of my career. Yeah, it's super interesting. And, and you and I were talking before the show here, but you know, Interlink still is deeply embedded and plays a vital role just in deal making in general, which um, you know, in the public markets, we're used to a lot of infrastructure to support that at scale. In the private markets, no one is unfamiliar with how broken it is, how fractionalized mm-hmm. it is, how how many point solutions um, you're expected to bring together. I mean, any deal, you're not going to run into the same um, tech stack twice, right? Right. And so um, Interlinks is still very much a vital player now, now owned by, by SS&C right. um, as, as used as a data room. For sure, um, yeah. And that so was the original just to review information. And then you can see how, why the stuff that we were building at that company has started smart work groups you know, collaborating online. Well, what is a data room with that? And so, so that, that kind right. of lives on, which is cool to see. The other interesting kind of uh, thread, well, actually, so you were mentioning sort of, you know, and of course we're talking about, we're on alternative universe here. The news about Carta was interesting to me. I'm sure you must've seen mm. that. So there've oh, been yeah, lots of attempts definitely. to make private investments more accessible. And they sort of did a face plant with uh, mining their user data. Now, I mean, the, the largest share of startups and startup shares, you know, yeah. are listed internally for those companies on Carta. So Carta maybe did a face plant move by trying to make that public without really disclosing to their startups what they were trying to do. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And coming from a sales background without knowing any, I don't know anything um, of what's going on in Carta that's outside of the news that, that information you and I might have. But mm-hmm. just coming from my career in sales and building out sales teams, I believe it's just an incentive issue, Right. And so, as we all know, when you incentivize somebody enough to get something done, they'll get it done. And whether it's done the correct way, or in this case, maybe the um, the perhaps legal way, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we'll see where that where those cards fall. Um, but at at any rate, um, the ethical way, it's all about incentive. And so, when you have two businesses and somebody can figure out how to get access to information where they think they're going to get the upper hand, you're going to see it done. So. I think, as you mentioned, it's a face plant for sure. 
there's probably some rails that could have been put in place that weren't. Well, yeah, I definitely feel for that product team because they clearly spent a lot of time and then it's launched and then within less than 72 hours, this product is pulled. So that's a, yeah. that's a tough one. But I mean, it's one of many efforts to try to make the private markets more liquid and uh, and more, mm-hmm. more transparent. So I'm sure we'll, we'll continue to see plays. But yeah, you know, from there to here. So, you know, real quick and obviously, Steve, you know, the story of, of Hidden Levers, we get into that. But I spent a few years working on Wall Street then moved down to Atlanta, which is where I am today. I tried another startup in between, totally different space, travel expense management, failed there and learned a valuable lesson about team building because I tried to do everything by myself and gained a lot of respect for sales, actually. The fact that how hard it is, you know, sometimes if you're a technical founder or you think about it from the investment perspective, if you're like a CIO or somebody who knows finance and investments deeply, but there's a human element in communicating back to whether or not that's LPs, you know, whether or not that's, of course, end clients, if you're in the advisory space in our in an RIA, that's actually a huge value that that I came to respect because I tried to start a startup where I didn't have the sales function. I did 100 sales calls myself, you know, I tried to chase down leads and I realized, wow, this is really hard. Even if the software might be good, this is really hard. That gave me sort of the, the knowledge that I needed, I think, when when starting the next company. So then leveraging the knowledge that I had from my days on Wall Street. And my own background is computer science and economics. So into uh, Hidden Levers, which is now Orion Risk Intelligence. So what did I do? One of the first things that I did was I was like, who's going to help me sell this? And I reached out to somebody, you know, we both know well, Raju Deshi, who became uh, you know my co-founder and and helped, helped us drive that story out in the RA world. And you too, Absolutely. Steve, right? Because you were there pretty early on as well. Yeah, I mean, I I get asked and I share this story quite often, but you know, when I when I joined the team, we were at the incubator in New York. You had already moved to Atlanta and you were there. Um, but it was pretty funny because I think I was with you and Raj for maybe six months and uh Billy and I found out that we were gonna be having a second child. Mm-hmm. It wasn't our ideal to have two kids in New York City. So I let you guys know that hey, we we're thinking we're gonna move to Atlanta and you said, Great. Well, we'll move hidden levers to Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, you know, it wasn't was long there. after it that. Like that yeah, there were, let's say, there were basically three of us, and and we already had some yep. fractional folks kind of working in the mix too. But uh, yeah, exactly. But uh, it was like, well, the center of gravity moves to Atlanta. If two people are there, so uh, you know, and built the company, <laughs> built the company here from from that point onward. Yeah, exactly. And so you and Raj decided from the gate when you started hidden levers to. Um, you know, come at it, bootstrap, and um, at least get the MVP and get our first million in ARR. Tell us a little bit about that journey as a founder and an operator and how you made the decision as far as deploying capital, right? Because the way I look at it is when we talk about private markets, it's easy to get stuck into the nuance and the details of all these different names mm-hmm. and genres. But at the end of the day, we're talking about it, the use and deployment of capital, right? Right. Absolutely. That's all it is. There's going to be different ways to do that. And all, all capital is, is a tool. And so you guys made this decision pretty early on. Part of that was informed by your experience. But uh, walk us through that from the eyes yeah. of an entrepreneur and an operator. Well, I think it's important to, so so why bootstrap? And so initially, like I was mentioning how, you know, I wanted to raise uh, VC capital or investor capital for my first startup. So the change in sort of a perspective was informed by the Interlinks experience and that acquisition because we, that acquisition, I think something like 10% of the value was cash. But, you know, 90 was equity and that equity. So my share of the equity, I think the the valuation was we were nominally valued a bit over a million dollars we required. So it wasn't a big acquisition, although for 
you know, young kids, it seemed big at the time, but my shares. So I get my check for, I don't know, I think it was 35 grand was my share of the cash portion, but my shares ended up being worth like around $300. And the reason why was that Interlinks did a massively dilutive down round in order to survive the dot-com bust. And, and they eventually did go public, but the shares went down in value by like 99.99, like 99% or something like that. So I don't remember how many nines, but yeah, you know, they went down, you know, maybe one in a, you know, a thousand. So yeah, all of a sudden that's what you get. You get your $300 dinner. And so our like kind of views on uh, raising capital and on equity and its value were influenced by that. And a lot of folks were who came up in that era. So we thought when we started hidden levers, well, we've got a team I can build the product. Raj can sell the product like, like out of the gate. So what else do we really need? We just let's put our sweat equity in and see where we get. And we always told ourselves, it's not that we're against raising capital, but when we've got the system worked out so that the only limiting factor is lack of capital, then we'll go raise capital. And each step of the way, and you know, you were there in those early days, we would, we were just scrappy and lean and we would, um, whether it was going to trade shows and being scrappy and lean and staying at the, I remember we stayed at the Motel 6 in Orlando once. So, you know, just doing whatever it is you had to do to, to keep it lean and, uh, and just growing from cash flow. We didn't feel like we had enough visibility into, okay, if we raise a million dollars right now, what exactly will we spend it on? And part of it was that question mark. It's like, we don't know exactly what the right choices are right now. So why uh, burden ourselves? Let's just, you know, we're growing steadily. Maybe we're not growing at like a thousand percent a year, but we're growing steadily. So let's just keep doing that and reinvesting. And that was the approach we took. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think that, you know, at least in the entrepreneurial space, startup tech, tech specifically, this idea of a SaaS model. You know, I read recently an article and there was a concept in there that I've grasped onto that I really like. As much as we would like to believe that we can build a SaaS company, mm-hmm. it's not up to us. It's up to our customer who decides to renew because they're getting continued value from the product. And so as much of an ideal as we want to have to um, go out and set out to build a SaaS company, it's up to us to create the framework and put people in, put customers into that experience and then they decide if the value that we're continuing to provide is worth them renewing, mm-hmm. where now all of a sudden we have a SaaS business. And I think that that's overlooked quite often. You know, you get creative in, in how you're going to price it and what the contract structure is. But at the end of the day, you got to provide value um, to those customers. And, you know, when it comes to juicing it, like you said, is capital the only limiting factor? Uh, the other concept there is we're all setting out to build a machine. And at the top of that machine, you want to put a dollar in. And then over a period of time, you want to see that dollar plus come out the bottom. How long does it take for that dollar plus? And if you have the machine built and you can prove that, then how many dollars can you stuff in the top of it? Yeah, right? if it's I think just that's add a good money point to watch, go out and raise money. If it's just add money and watch it grow, then of course, then it's time to like, you know, raise as much capital as you can. There got to be this sort of mindset, I think. It started before 2020, but certainly it accelerated briefly in the pandemic, um, you know, in the, in the truly low interest rate environment. But we had a zero interest rate environment for pockets of that whole decade. And so raising capital on a big sort of future growth market bet, even though you didn't know exactly what the product looked like, even though you didn't know exactly what the sales, you know, motion looked like or any of that, people would do that. And VCs would take that bet and, you know, strike out a whole heck of a lot, but that's the nature of their business. 
But when we were looking at it, there was a different aspect of bootstrapping that really appealed and, and looking maybe in hindsight as, as well, that was helpful. And that was being bootstrapped. What it actually means is that what's your funding source? Your customers are your funding source. And to your point, Steve, so your customers are your funding source. So now that means you're going to be really attuned. You're forced to be really attuned to meet their needs because what else have you got, right? There is no million dollars or $10 million or whatever in the bank account. So therefore, you've got to meet their needs and grow and adapt with them. So one of the, the key things I'll say that we learned, so Hidden Levers, when we built that platform initially, portfolio stress testing, scenario-based portfolio stress testing is what we were bringing to the table. And a lot of, actually a lot of different audiences found that interesting. Retail investors find that very interesting. And so we didn't know who our audience necessarily was. And it was sort of trial and error to discover that, oh, financial advisors, the reason this can be a SaaS product for them is that unlike, say, a high net worth individual where, you know, even if they're worth 50 million, 100 million, whatever, like very like ultra high net worth, they've only got a finite number of assets in portfolios and accounts. So how often do they actually need to stress test those? Maybe quarterly or something at most, maybe less often, quite often. Uh, and so with financial advisors, because they're running a book of business, there's always someone new to work on. And so this software can have repeated use and value. And then as we inflected it more toward the realization that advisors want to use these kinds of, this kind of technology to help raise new assets by having a good conversation with their prospects around risk. And we, and not just us, Riskalyze and all the others that sort of kind of a bunch of companies that came up in a similar era, you know, attuned to that. Yeah. And I think it's just an interesting exercise for any business out there while we were kind of exploring with our customers, how can we add value, but then also understanding their business model and how they build a relationship and add value. Um, it was a pivotal point. I think it was a turning point for us at Hidden Levers where we went from being a, a compliance tool, a portfolio management tool on how you would build and construct and analyze the how a portfolio will react under certain economic decisions, like really this investment management tool mm -hmm. to being a marketing and relationship management part. So not just how I communicate to customers, but how do I set expectations and then continue to revisit those expectations on an ongoing basis, right? So it's about finding the mm -hmm. trigger where you relate and you fit into your, your prospect or your client's business model as well. So financial advisor is a prime example of that. They're maintaining the relationship and they need to have some, some, some consistency because whether you call it SaaS or not, they're on a recurring revenue model. They rely on that, the long-term relationships with their clients. So that was a fun, that was a fun experiment for us. It was uh, pretty eye-opening too. Yeah, it was. And, and, and you'll recall, Steve, that the biggest, or I suppose the final part of that pivot, we had been serving sort of the prospect-facing or client-facing needs of advisors for some years when it fell into our lap that we had a major customer ask us that, can you build a next level proposal generation tool? We had advisory firms using our reports, our stress test reports and others, other kind of materials that we generated in front of clients and it was branded, but this was sort of taking mm -hmm. that next step. And that really ignited sort of, uh, you know, a big phase in our growth. And where did that come from? That actually came from a customer saying, well, can you build a better proposal than what we're getting from, I think they were using a Morningstar tool at that time, than what we're getting from this. And we said, yeah, we think we can do that. And building that hand in hand with the customer, then that became a core of our product set for the next, I mean, I think that was 2016. And so for the next five years, yeah. half of Hidden Levers sort of lifespan up into acquisition. And then if I can borrow Eric Clark's words, as we were in the process of that acquisition, 
best proposal in the business. That was one mm-hmm. of the key reasons that Orion was interested in hidden levers and, you know, and making it, you know, into Orion risk intelligence and bringing some of that into the Orion ecosystem today. No doubt, man. And so you, your most recent acquisition there was exiting hidden levers into Orion. Uh, you spent time at Orion, but I think one of the things at hidden levers that was unique, the way you operated the business, and I think allowed us to um, react to customer needs within the scale that we had was this use of fractional developers. Um, you obviously had a network and you knew a lot of developers, but you were able to build that business on fractional work, which is where you're focused now. Why don't you tell a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, it was that it, it, it happened organically, you know, as, as things often do. So when you're bootstrapped, you don't have a lot of money. Well, we crossed a point where we were selling and we had some revenue in the door, but we needed to get some integrations done. So this is when, you know, I think TD, if I'm not mistaken, back when it was TD AI, they were uh, our first integration. I was, I remember thinking, I was like, well, I don't have time to build this. We've got so many features to build. And so that was where the idea came up. Like I knew somebody I had worked with actually at AT&T on a contract, you know, some years before, and I knew that he could do the work, you know, guy by the name of Sahel. I was like, hey man, do you want to work maybe 20 hours a week on this on the side? I know that AT&T doesn't have you that busy. And so it just sort of organically started that way. And then over the course of nine years, roughly, he built like 25 integrations. So that was sort of the first person we brought in that way. But we realized, you know, why have a single-minded view about like the nature of professional work? Like, does it all have to be 40 hours, you know, a week, full-time job only? Or can we slice it, you know, and can we get maybe some amount of time from an expert in a certain area? You know, once it, once it worked, once that test worked for us early on, we kind of did that with almost everybody that we brought in the table. Like we would have them start, put their toe in. Maybe they would still have their full-time job and work for us part-time for a little bit and then make the leap across. And then, you know, you'll recall, Steve, we did that on the business side as well, on the marketing side, like all kinds of roles. So we definitely took that approach. With the product development specifically, it was over 40% of our development team was fractional. So we sort of, we recognized the value. Of course, you have to have a, an in-house team, like a core of that team and a CTO and all of those things. But you can really augment and save a lot of money because senior engineers, senior folks in any discipline, but certainly senior engineers are expensive. If we don't need all of that, or if we need a specific skill set, why carry all of that cost? So that bootstrapping mentality led us to that. And it works so well that post-exit, I thought, well, what if we take this idea and try to scale it out to other organizations? Absolutely. No, I mean, and I think that there is a... uh there's a line there. There's a difference between fractional and engaging someone fractional like Sue Hill, that relationship that we had there, building the very first integration to an outside third party where we're sharing data. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I bet Sue Hale worked on the very last integration that was built and maintained by Hidden Levers before it was acquired. Yeah, he was. That whole time. Yeah. So, right. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's something that I think you're, you're absolutely right that when folks think about, oh, let's bring in a contractor, it's usually like, a project here, a project there. Whereas we thought of mm-hmm. this as being a long-term strategy for us. So the tenure, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously in his case, it was, you know, call it nine years. Uh, there was another uh, another guy, Terrell, that we worked with. So he was there for like five years at exit. But last I checked in, I, I think I talked to somebody at Ryan and they said, oh yeah, Terrell's still here. So we're now three years <laughs> post-exit. So he's going to lap us at some point. He will have had the longest tenure on the team. <laughs> 
And he has had, he, he does other work, right? Beyond that. And right. hey, it works well. Right. So yeah, that model of long-term engagement with the person was what we kind of, that's fractional as opposed to just being sort of a part-time contractor. And that difference between gig and fractional, I think there's a characteristic there that's really important and that's domain expertise. Mm-hmm. It becomes really obvious, especially when you're in a startup, if you've outsourced development and you lack someone internally who has the domain expertise who can manage that, whether it's internal or external, um, you start to notice that when there's a lack of domain expertise, you create more work for yourself than you need to. So having consistency in someone who can own a project or a pillar within a, within a business is so important, even if it's part-time, but part-time with a long-term invested relationship where they're familiar with you, they're familiar mm-hmm. with the problem you're solving, they get familiar with the customers you're solving it for. Um, there's tremendous value in that. So fractional work, I feel like that is one of the things um, that can be so valuable from, from stepping into that lane. Yeah. And, uh, you know, cool. in concrete number sorts of terms, I was, I was kind of reviewing and it was about a million dollars a year we saved. And there were a couple of prongs to that. So one is, if you think about five senior developers, a million dollars a year based on, give us an idea of size of business. Well, sure. So, so relative, that, you right? know, and at exit, our run rate was around 8 million. So very non-trivial. Okay. I mean, for a lot of companies, that would be their entire profit margin. Hidden levers, you know, we took pride in yeah. the fact that we ran very profitably. So an exit, we were, you know, just above a 50% EBITDA margin. But so that's a substantial share wow. of our of our profit base. Where did that come from? So some of that was just the fact that instead of hiring a an engineer full-time, and these are senior folks, meaning 10, 15 years of experience, sometimes more. So those kinds of people all in cost. Now you've got your base salary, but you know, generally speaking, there's probably a bonus. There's probably, there may be some equity involved. There's of course benefits. There's vacation time. Add all the costs up and it wouldn't, it's not at all surprising to be around 200 grand for a senior person like that. And so we are paying a fraction of that, oftentimes less than half. Because another thing that we found is that with these fractional roles, developers, not just developers, but anyone if they've got sort of a main thing, and this is sort of, you know, their fractional sideline, they're willing to discount it if it's a long-term relationship. Because the same sorts of folks might be going on Upwork or some of these platforms to look for gigs. That's really frustrating for them because they find a gig, then they finish it, then they got to do another one. They got to find another one. Then they got to find another one. And so instead of that, having that long-term relationship enables them to sort of, you know, all right, yeah, I'm willing to do this for a little bit less. It's a sideline anyway. So that those savings came back to us as a company. That was one big chunk of savings. And the other big chunk of savings was that because we had all these senior resources fractionally, we actually hired a bit more junior for our full-time in-house staff. And uh, some knowledge transfer could happen there. Of course, there was knowledge transfer from the senior leadership of the team, like folks like myself, but even from these senior fractional engineers to some of the full-time folks we had. So on both sides, we were saving money, and that's where you can get such a large impact. I mean, again, for a lot of companies, having a million dollars a year in profit on an $8 million run that's the whole game right yeah. there. And, you know, I bring this up and I'm kind of leaning into it because obviously, you know, we're focusing on private markets here and, you know, not just building technology for private markets and, and that, but also just, you know, fund managers in general. And then when I think of, you know, advisors who might be thinking how, how they're going to allocate to private markets in these deals and venture specifically has always had this uh, mentality of growth at all cost. Right. Mm-hmm. And like we talked about earlier, the money machine, you know, they're looking for the money machine that just barely got identified, right, where they can stuff as much money in there as possible and get as much back out. And it's growth at all costs. And it's just, you know, scale the team and grow. 
but we're seeing that flip. We're seeing it flip right now in real time. And the model is leaning. I feel like the wind is at your back as far as the method of running a business. And now we're starting to see more and more in private markets, VC, early stage investors promote this type of operating and building a business. We're even seeing valuation models and metrics change, focus more on profitability and margin and how quick we can get there. How are you going to use my capital to get to profit? Mm -hmm. Not how are you going to use my capital to hire more salespeople and just bring in more revenue? Right. Yeah. You know, and of course, interest rates are a big part of that equation, you know, within markets and, and bringing folks, um, bringing in uh, present value needs to happen sooner rather than rather than later. I think there's that shift. Another shift thinking like from an investment perspective in in software technology, we're thinking about the VC space. Uh, one change, say from 10, 15 years ago, those early days of, of hidden levers, is that the cost of starting up has dropped. And that's been, that's, I think that's nice for a lot of companies that are starting now. The cost of building technology has dropped just because the tools have become more advanced. Now you've got like low code solutions that are actually, you know, low code has been attempted sort of, and, and for those who don't know what these low code and no code solutions are, basically they enable you to sort of drag and drop build software instead of having to write all of the code. And so that's one prong. And the other prong, of course, is AI and chat GPT and all of that. So code generation via these tools. So there's two prongs that are sort of making it lower cost. So that's helpful. It's still non-trivial, but I think that there's some interesting things that happen with that. One is that as costs drop to start a company, I think you see even more startups because it's easier to do. Um, you know, it's lowering a barrier to entry, right? So you see more startups attacking more different uh, spaces and fields. It may enable from an, an investment perspective, more small scale funds, more angel kinds of investments that where a company can raise, say, an angel round or what used to be called like a pre-seed round. Like maybe they raise a couple hundred thousand, maybe a half million. Maybe that's all they yeah. ever need to raise because the costs of creating software are lower. And to your point, Steve, that they're going after with discipline revenue sooner. And so if they can get to break even, then now they've got an infinite runway and they can start to do experiments. Maybe they'll still raise more capital in order to build faster, but they have more options. No, I agree. And and again, I think that you get more options if you can get to profitability for sure. Um, but there, you still have to, once you've proved out product market fit and you have a repeatable model, it really, at that point, it does become a sprint. And so you need to grow as fast as you can. And so shoving capital into the top of that machine is is extremely important, but you have more freedom if you, and, and you have way more options if you can get to profitability and with a stable market, mm -hmm. with that product market fit on your way. And it lowers, sure. you know, from an investor's perspective, looking for when considering, let's say, private tech investments, angel kinds of investments, having a company that's got some revenue, you know, and has got a, the, their business model figured out as opposed to here's the software and here's the pitch, here's the demo, <laughs> but we don't actually right. know who the customer is yet. You know, there's a level of risk there. And then you really de-risk it a good bit when you've kind of got the revenue story in place and, and that's being executed against. Of course, it's still a high risk investment overall relative to, say, to public markets. The other thing that's been interesting to see, or that is sort of like a big picture question that we, we all wonder about getting into the investment world for a second. At this point, we have to call it long-term outperformance of mega caps, uh, not even large caps, but mega caps versus small caps and other, you know, if we're, if we're using valuation metrics, this sort of winner take all aspect of the economy in a lot of these different markets has been interesting to see. So we see that like 
Magnificent Seven kind of, you know, effect. Now, I can't predict the future. I don't know like how valuations will change, but it seems like from a, a basic business principles perspective, some of these companies have monopolies or near monopolies in various areas. And so they're very hard to unseat. Now, as technology evolves, maybe you get a shift. So all the VCs are chasing, essentially they're chasing the next company, well, the next open AI, if we want to talk about short term, they're chasing the next company that has the potential to unseat the big players. The challenge is, is that those are like, maybe they're not one in a million, but they're like one in a hundred thousand or one in 10,000 companies. And so for investors that are thinking about like, you know, investing in startups, in a lot of ways, rather than p- going after those plays that are trying to make some horizontal kind of scalable tech that will be the next Google or Amazon or Microsoft or Apple, those are lottery tickets. It, now, if in your portfolio, you correctly view that money as lost the moment you buy the lottery ticket and maybe it pays off. Great. That's the right way to think about that. But there are other tech investments that you might make that are substantially low risk because, again, they're operating companies that are either close to or on their way to profitability that are in niches. For instance, the stuff that we spent the last decade doing, right, Steve, and then you're still, you know, building tech in wealth tech. So in the this technology space that serves as a financial advisory business, that would be considered a niche in the sense that your Amazons and your Microsofts aren't that interested probably in building that solution. And there are lots of other niches that like, I don't know, plumbing company tech. I'm just throwing random ideas out there, but there's, there's, uh, those are more likely to be defensible than the horizontal plays where the big boys want to play too. Absolutely. We, I did an interview with a small venture firm called 11 tribes, Mark Phillips. And he talks about that. He talks about, you know, look at the likeliness of a liquidity event in the investments that you're making. And so if you're always aiming for that next unicorn billion dollar valuation, that's going to unseat a massive incumbent, even in large cap, if you focus, if we can focus more on, you know, companies that might have liquidation events and you get in early enough and it's going to be a 30, 40, $50 million exit, which can be great for the founders and it can be great for the early stage investors. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you can help assist those, those base hits can add up rapidly and that can make for a massively successful portfolio because those types of acquisitions happen all the time. Right. Yeah. Those are much, you more, know, IPOs don't. They're much more common. <laughs> Especially yeah. right now. And, and others like, um, I feel like Jason Lemkin and others have written about this, that up to around a hundred million, maybe even a little larger than that, you know, in that 2020, 2021 era, but say in that range up to a hundred million and maybe a little bigger than that, the acquisition space, the M&A space is active and continues mm-hmm. to be active. But then there's like an air pocket where what does a $400 million, $500 million company do? Yeah, there might be an M&A opportunity or they might have to get a little bit bigger or a lot bigger and then IPO because mm-hmm. the IPO markets you know, will vary in their tolerance of what today would be considered like a pretty small, small cap when you're mm-hmm. talking about a three, $400 million company. So the IPO window may or may not be open for them. They may need to get triple the size. And, and we've seen that in the wealth tech space as well, that um, IPO is only possible if the, for the largest players and M&A is much more likely. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Praveen, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm sure our audience is going to get a lot of value out of it. And I'll just make a comment. And um, for anybody interested, Praveen builds and creates awesome content on LinkedIn. So we'll drop a link to your LinkedIn profile um, in the show notes here. But um, 
you do a great job, I think, out there of creating these little micro-engagement tips and, and tricks for operators on how to run businesses. And I really appreciate that content. Appreciate you putting it out there. So thanks. Well, thanks, Steve. Yeah, it's been fun. So um, hopefully more folks will will find us. And uh, and it, you know, if there is any interest, you know, if, if anybody is thinking about building tech, hirefraction.com is is the new business. Yep. Hirefraction.com. And uh, I think it goes for our whole audience out there. You know, you heard Praveen's story, successful operator and for our fund audience as well. Um, you're deploying capital and a lot of the time you're stepping into a partnership with these founders and um, being able to guide them on the best way to, again, deploy the capital to grow their business. I think fractional work is that emerging. It's, it's really an emerging segment and a um, great place to start. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Alternative Universe. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Mammoth Technology and produced by Turncast. If you like the show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or where you're listening to this episode right now. For more information about Mammoth Technology and Alternative Universe, visit us at mammothtechnology.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered advice. The participants may have financial interests in the companies discussed on the podcast.